Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I'll be speaking with David Sahat, Associate Professor of History at Georgia State University. His book, The Jefferson Rule, How the Founding Fathers Became Infallible and Our Politics Inflexible, published by Simon & Schuster, is the topic of this show. Part- Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I'll be speaking with David Sahat, Associate Professor of History at Georgia State University. His book, The Jefferson Rule, How the Founding Fathers Became Infallible and Our Politics Inflexible, published by Simon & Schuster, is the topic of this show. Part narrative history, part political analysis, and beginning with George Washington's administration to the 2012 Congressional Budgetary Crisis, Sahat provides a long sweep of the continued conflict over the meaning of the U.S. Constitution and the intent of the founders. Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton represented two different interpretations and set the course of subsequent debates over first principles that by Lincoln's time had escalated into civil war. The differences revolved largely on the role of the federal government, state rights, and the limits of economic freedom. After the Civil War, and as America faced becoming a modern nation, the founders as a standard of ideals went into eclipse. The oppositional rhetoric of the American Liberty League to Roosevelt's New Deal and constitutional reinterpretation once again turned to the founders. Modern political rivals have continued to call on the legacy of the founders to legitimize their arguments and making them a test of political orthodoxy. Martin Luther King's civil rights campaign, the Reagan Revolution, and the Tea Party movement drew from the founders with radically different understandings of the past and the future. Liberals pointed the changing nature of the constitutional governance, arguing for context and adaptation. Conservatives held to a static and binding view of the Constitution, asserting original intent. All arguments that found their way to the Supreme Court. Sahad argues that conflicts over the intent of the founders and the meaning of the Constitution has kept the nation paralyzed in dealing with the present. By asking what the founders would do, we foreclose productive debate. Here's my conversation with David Sahat. Now let me introduce you to the author, David Sahat. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. You have written a long and engaging narrative of a political problem that has plagued American history. It seems to me that there are revolutionary implications to your analysis. But before we get into the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write The Jefferson Rule. Well, I'm, I'm an American historian, and um, I, uh, I wrote a – this is my second book, and I wrote a book um, prior to this about the way that Protestant Christianity influenced American law. And uh, as I was finishing that book, I uh, kept having conversations with people, often colleagues, and, um, and I'd be telling them about my argument, and they would, they would always respond, and sometimes they'd even interrupt me, and they would say, but the founding fathers separated church and state, and – uh, that was weird, I thought, because these were, you know, kind of liberal people. And um, 
if I had said the founding fathers believed that women shouldn't be part of the political process, I don't think they would have responded very well to that. They would have said, you know, who cares? But on that issue, they thought it was very important. And um, about the uh, the same time that that was going on, uh, this is 2008, 2009, the Contemporary Tea Party uh, began. And I was, I think, like many people, somewhat repulsed by the anti-intellectualism of the Tea Party. And I had read enough of the founding fathers by that point to know that their founding fathers was not the founding fathers that I was finding in, in the historical record. And so I kind of wondered, you know, how did we get to this point that the founding fathers um, occupied this place in American politics? And I wrote the book to kind of explain that to myself and then to everybody else. Okay, so what is what is the what is the political problem? Your your whole book is about a political. What is that problem actually? Well, I mean, I think there's a series of problems, but the the, the first problem is, I think, um, the most fundamental problem, and it's an intellectual problem, and that is that if you say the founding fathers thought fill in the blank, there's almost no intellectually credible way to fill in the blank uh, because. The Founding Fathers thought lots of different things, and they were among the most divided political generation in American uh, politics. So they fought about um, the role of the executive and the relationship of the executive to the other two branches of government. They fought about the, um, the relationship between the federal and the state government. They fought about uh, how and to what extent the federal government could intervene in the economy. And um, the Constitution itself provided a vast theater of argument. And so that, that, that fundamental problem right there, the Founding Fathers thought they can't possibly do what American politicians want them to do because they were not a kind of unit unbroken by disagreement. Um, and then and so what happens then is is that politicians um, kind of invent the founders and um, they invent inevitably people that look like themselves. And then they use that invention to beat up their political opponents. So now, um, isn't it, which you would you would agree, though, that the whole nature of political dialogue and debate is always using anything and everything that you can use in rhetoric to make your case. And political dialogue, political arguments and debates, that's sort of the nature of them. Exaggerations, you know, uh, overemphasizing certain things and uh, ignoring other things in order to win points. Is there any way to overcome that when you're engaged in political, real serious political battles where a lot of things are at stake and people feel like there's a lot of things at stake? And so they're going to take out everything from their arsenal that they can possibly take out. Mm-hmm. How do you overcome that, really? Well, I mean, I guess my, of course, politicians do all kinds of 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 of, of, uh, of things, and and of course, there's um, uh, intellectual failures in in American politics. Uh, but but you point out, I think, uh, an important point, and that is that. Politics is about these enormously important things. It's about the marshalling of resources. It's about, um, in, in some cases, the use of the entire coercive apparatus of the state to achieve uh, collective goals. And so my, my presumption there is in, in criticizing um, contemporary debate is that if there are intellectual problems in that debate, if um, propaganda, and that's, that's I think, the way that, that uh, the founding fathers often work. If propaganda is a chief characteristic of that debate, then that's a debate really unworthy of 
the importance of the subject and really the, the power that the government has in, in uh, American life. And so my kind of plea is to eliminate the propaganda as much as possible. And it, just as a starting point, any time the founding fathers come up, you're pretty much going to see propaganda. And I find that problematic. Okay. Let's get back to the book. Um, you start off, what I like about your book is that you have a very long sweep of time. You start with Washington and the Constitution uh, and what Washington was expecting. I mean, the, the, the founders didn't know what was going to happen, but they had certain expectations of how the political machine was going to run. Right. So what did, he, what did Washington expect and what did he actually get? <laughs> well, he expected what, what many people thought, which was that um, if he selected the cream of American society, provided that they were all Republican in, in, in orientation, that, that they would work in a consensual manner, that they would um, uh, kind of in cool deliberation consider the problems of, uh, of the nation, and that they would collectively implement solutions in a kind of non-rancorous and uh, clear-minded way. What he in fact got was an extremely divided cabinet in which one uh, group led by Alexander Hamilton uh, wanted to use the new powers of the executive branch and of the federal government in general to develop the American economy. And then you had another group led by uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was the Secretary of State, who were uh, opposed to Alexander Hamilton. And these two groups were um, bitter in their uh, dispute with one another. And also, and I think this is the thing that many people are surprised about, uh, really mean-spirited to one another. They were scurrilous. You know, they would... They would um, attack one another in anonymous uh, form um, in, in, in the print. Uh, and so what, what he got was a, a, a massive departure from the consensual form of politics that he was expecting and the emergence of the first political parties, which were far um, more hateful toward one another than, than even today because they believed on a fundamental level that the other party was a threat to the nation um, in this kind of critical moment of its existence. Now, the founders all thought that they could conduct, when they started, uh, politics above the fray, that these were educated, civilized gentlemen who could reason through things, and they were very suspicious of political parties, factions, and they were also suspicious of the mob, mm -hmm. <laughs> democracy, you know, and how we think of it today. Uh, so this was, a, this was something they were trying to avoid. Yeah. But what happened? Well, it, it was a funny thing because um, so part of the deal was that they each thought that the other side was violating consensual politics. They each thought the other side was forming a political party. Um, and so they, they found themselves in this conundrum in that the, they felt that the other fa party or faction was um, pursuing invidious uh, goals. And so they themselves kind of started edging toward party in the belief that they needed to create a party to organize themselves in order to overcome the other side and therefore to do away with parties in general. It was the kind of an embrace of the party animal in order to supposedly do away with parties. And it, and it kind of worked, actually. Um, 
Thomas Jefferson uh, uh, began his party. He triumphed in the election of 1800. He came into um, um, the presidency in that election. And then he spent the next eight years promising to obliterate the opposing party, the Federalists. Um, And he largely succeeded. The Federalist Party kind of uh, disappeared slowly. It, It finally completely unraveled in the War of 1812. And there entered a period of one-party rule. And so you could say on one level, uh, Jefferson was successful. But in order to do that, he he used this rhetoric, and this is why I, I tell this story in the first chapter. He used this rhetoric of the true principles of the revolution. And, and he started saying things like the Federalists were committing apostasy and, and, and they weren't upholding proper political orthodoxy. And when he defeated the Federalists and, and his party you know, became triumphant, that rhetoric of, of uh, which conceived the founding moment as this moment of purity that entered into American uh, political discourse. And from that point on, people began to kind of look back to the founding moment to justify their own, their own policies. So, but it also wasn't in your book, it's not just that the founders themselves are uh, arguing about what was intended or what the model actually was, but also that you had a problem among the populace. Uh, the the whiskey rebellion that you talk about, yeah. So uh, the out there there was a problem. There were <laughs> conflicts. Yeah, yeah. I mean the the, the problem was that uh, Hamilton was was putting forward a a, a, a political vision, um, and it re- required uh, uh, the creation of a national bank, the collection of monies, and then the channeling of the, those monies through the national bank into American industry. And there were many people, uh, particularly those who were not in urban centers, who were not themselves merchants or um, looking to benefit from merchants, who resisted his policies because they they thought, not necessarily wrongly, that it was um, taking their money and channeling it in um, uh, to, to other people. Uh, to use the the present uh, 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 day term, he, he was picking winners and losers, and so. Um, Around about the time that he began to kind of really implement the policies, a a, a rebellion began that historians call the Whiskey Rebellion. And Jefferson, who had just started um, party organizing in earnest, looked at this Whiskey Rebellion and um, and, and the the formation of, of a set of societies that preceded that rebellion, the Democratic and Republican societies, and thought, if we can use those societies and use this kind of popular unrest that he saw in the history in, in the whiskey rebellion and we can channel that into electoral victory and that's where that that rhetoric of the true principles of the revolution and, and apostasy and all that really was useful it was in convincing this um, this nascent democratic electorate to support his policies and then to put him into office what I noticed about your book from very early on that the political problem underneath it all really is the economic problem because mm-hmm. it seems like whoever has the economic power ends up having the political power, mm-hmm. which, which has, of course, stayed with us till today. Um, but I want to go on with, with this. Then we get to, you go into Andrew Jackson and John, John C. Calhoun, and what happened to Andrew Jackson I thought was really interesting. How he, you know, he had a certain vision when he came in, but then he had to fa- face the reality of, of uh, nullif- the nullification crisis. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think it was very interesting how it kind of turned on him. 
Yeah, th- this is um, Andrew Jackson belongs in, in the second generation of American politics. He was uh, he was not a figure that fought in the American Revolution, and 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 his generation was, um, I think, a really key generation in this in this rhetorical pattern that I'm tracing, because what happened was that everyone in Andrew Jackson's generation was at least initially part of the party of Jefferson. They were part of the Republican Party. And then in the election of 1824, there were so many candidates, there were four candidates, that uh, there wasn't a majority in the Electoral College. And in fact, there also was not a majority in the popular vote. And Jackson had both the majority in the Electoral College and, or the, the plurality in the Electoral College and the, and the popular vote. So he felt like he should get the presidency. This eventually got kicked into the House of Representatives, which is what happens. And John Quincy Adams was then elected president. So what Jackson did from that point forward is he spent the next four years developing a kind of narrative in which he um, channeled Jefferson. He claimed that Jefferson uh, would have supported him. He started using these kind of Jeffersonian tropes about the true principles of republicanism, and he began to recreate the founding fathers into this um, kind of unit that uh, had no disagreement, and that was, to his mind, um, fully supportive of his own democratic initiatives, because he was a Democrat above all. Um, he very successfully then channeled uh, Jefferson and the Founding Fathers in general uh, into support and then came into the presidency in 1828. Uh, but what he found was that he had created this this, this kind of animal. And in, in, in channeling Jefferson, Jefferson is a very complicated figure because he was, of course, an anti-slavery slave owner. He was um, theoretically in, in, in favor of states' rights, but, but then often also kind of sided with national power. And so you can find in Jefferson really whatever you want to find um, to, to argue your case. And um, when Jackson came into power in 1828, his vice president, John C. Calhoun, looked to him to uh, begin to redress this problem that Calhoun had seen, which is this growing federal government and the erosion of states' rights. And Jackson wasn't really interested in doing that. And so what Calhoun began to do is he he took this narrative of, of Jefferson and then the founding fathers in general, and he turned it against Jackson. And he began to argue that Jefferson supported states' rights, that Jefferson would support the cause of South Carolina. Uh, and he began to mobilize this narrative in a way that disrupted Jackson's own uh, purposes. And it ultimately culminated in this dispute uh, known as the nullification crisis in 1832 and 1833. So this is, I think, where you begin to see really clearly this uh, problem of the state versus the federal government, which es- continues to escalate till, till the Civil War, yeah. what Lincoln ends up inheriting from all this. Um, so how did, Link, you know, how did Link, Lincoln, this is what he got. He got a mess. Mm-hmm. And he had, you know, he had this great debate with Stephen Douglas. So t- talk a little bit about how the slavery issue comes into this issue uh, for our readers who might not be familiar with, with this. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, obviously slavery is all bound up in this. At least initially, though, it wasn't the main thing. The main thing was the tariff, and the tariff was a way that the federal government raised money. And that many people in the South, particularly in South Carolina, felt 
penalized them in many ways because they felt like they were paying the, the, the tariff through the retaliatory tariffs that, that Great Britain and other people um, issued for or levied against southern cotton and other southern exports. Um, but over time, this uh, issue began to turn into an explicitly uh, slavery issue. Um, and that happened through the acquisition of the, the American Southwest in the Mexican-American War. And the immediate question when the United States acquired all this, this, this land from Mexico as a result of the war was, what is the status of slavery within those territories? And that had, be, that had been a question since 1820 in the Missouri crisis. Uh, but it had, it had been largely been resolved as a result of the Missouri Compromise. Uh, but the problem with the American Southwest is that this was land that was outside the Louisiana Purchase and the Missouri Compromise officially only affected the land in the Louisiana Purchase. And many of the southern slave owners looked out over the American Southwest, and particularly in California, and they saw a rich agricultural land that they, they wanted for, for themselves, and they wanted slavery to be allowed there. Um, so this, this, uh, this debate then about the founding fathers and states' rights and all the rest, by the time of Lincoln, became really a debate over the founding fathers and their posture towards slavery and whether or not they thought that slavery should be contained in the American South or whether they thought that it could spread um, outside of the American South. And Lincoln came to the belief that the founding fathers both thought that it should be contained in the American South and therefore that it could die, uh, a kind of natural death. He never really said how that was supposed to happen, but he, that, that's what he thought. Um, and he further believed that the founding fathers had declared this principle and he's the, the originator of this, this idea of the living constitution, this principle of equality that was then supposed to grow over time. And so in a certain sense, it didn't really matter what they did or even their own conceptions of equality, that they had announced this principle and it was supposed to grow. Um, and then others in Lincoln's time, most notably uh, Stephen Douglas, thought that that was, that was ridiculous, that um, the founding fathers had allowed slavery to expand, that the founding fathers, many of them owned slaves, that they weren't as anti-slavery as, as um as Lincoln suggested. And that finally, that, that by, by looking at this kind of um, living constitutional idea, this idea that, that equality could grow, that um, Lincoln was loading the dice, Stephen Douglas said. And, and, and what Douglas believed fundamentally was that the founding fathers believed in popular sovereignty, that the people could determine their own arrangements however they saw fit. And what that meant was they could decide to have slavery or not have slavery or whatever. And so this debate over... Um, states' rights uh, became a debate over slavery in the various territories and ultimately about the, the intention of the founding fathers in forming the Union um, back in 1776 and then 1787. So the crux of this conflict really at the bottom was first economics and then how the Constitution was going to address this economic issue. Right. And yeah. so you've got this bloody war, you got half a million people get killed over what the Constitution says or doesn't say, uh, which ends up being, of course, as historians call it, the second founding of the yeah. nation. So after the second founding, after the Civil War, it's sort of like, okay, we're settled here on what we think the Constitution means. Mm-hmm. And so there ha- then you've, you, you're describing a period of sort of a, a quiet period where the founders sort of go, are put on ice and – Nobody's appealing to the founders anymore because we got modern American is emerging and we're seeing new realities and people are are trying to make sense of those new reality and founders seem rather far away and outdated in a way. 
Right. Yeah. The, um, you know, I would say that, that, that this conflict was not just economic, though. It was also ideological. And, and, and I think that what happened after the Civil War for about two to maybe three generations is the founders sort of disappeared from American political discourse. They, it's not that they, they were never brought up, but the kind of comprehensive debate over the founders, um, that wasn't occurring after the Civil War. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that many people recognized, particularly many people in American politics, that, that when you're having a political discussion and someone brings up the founding fathers, suddenly that political discussion changes. It's now no longer a policy debate, one in which you can um, reach you know reasonable uh, compromise and give a little and take a little. Uh, it's now this more fundamental debate in which it becomes very difficult to um, compromise because you don't compromise your fundamental principles. And so this this um, this pattern of rhetoric uh, had led to dysfunction, uh, kind of recurrent series of constitutional crises, and ultimately had led to civil war. And so American politicians after the civil war kind of stepped away from from this founder's rhetoric. And by the progressive era, um, this is in the early 20th century, many of the uh, politicians led by um, the the historians that were just then beginning to organize themselves into professional societies began to have an overtly critical uh, kind of perspective toward the founding fathers, not just neglecting, but, but actually hostile. Because from their perspective, the founding fathers were uh, men from a time that was so totally different than the early 20th century that they needed to be, in some sense, overcome. And so many people began discussing um, new uh, uh, um, amendments to the Constitution. They began proposing new constitutions entirely. Or uh, someone like Woodrow Wilson picked up this idea from um, Lincoln of the living Constitution and began saying that we need to kind of reconsider what the Constitution means in light of this modern America of skyscrapers and, uh, uh, and, and economic conflict, uh, that, that, that kind of America didn't exist in the founders um, era. Now you, in your book, you show that uh, during the presidency of Warren Hardin, 1920s is when the founders sort of begin to come back. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you've got a, a more full blown, uh, comeback in Roosevelt. Yeah. So talk about that for the listener a little bit. Okay. Well, so, the, you know, the, the, the progressive era was remarkable in the sense that it, it did feature all these constitutional amendments that, that on a fundamental level changed the founders' government. These, these are the, the 16th Amendment, which um, uh, allowed for an income tax, the 17th Amendment, which allowed for the direct election of U.S. senators. Uh, before that point, the senators would be elected by, by state legislatures. Um, and this was, a, uh, in, in the founders' uh, mind, a check against democracy, this sort of anti-mob um, sentiment that they had, the 18th Amendment, which was um, uh, the Prohibition Amendment, and then the 19th Amendment, which was the Women's Rights Amendment. And and there were all these other changes in government that were not constitutional, but that, that were nevertheless uh, profound. And there were many people in that era who were not progressives who were opposed to that. And these people began to gather in the Republican Party in uh, the 19-teens and especially in the 1920s. And to some extent, they were led by the 1920 Republican nominee and eventually the president, Warren G. Harding. And Harding was a man who revered the founding fathers. He spoke of um, the infallibility of the founding fathers. He actually invented the phrase, the founding fathers, in 1916 in in, in an address to the Republican National Convention. And so once he came in office in 1920, he began to refer to the founding fathers as a way 
um, in essence, to reject two decades of historical, uh, of progressive change. Um, and he began um, this, this kind of move, particularly among Republicans, to look to the founding fathers and the founding generation as a way of um, orienting their policies and ultimately of justifying of um, justifying kind of the Republican pro-business strategy that that really became big in uh, in the 1920s. Um, but it really this 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 kind of reference to the founders really returned once Franklin Roosevelt came into um, office um, in 1933, and uh, the the kind of the Republican businessmen of the era began looking around. Um, looked at the New Deal, which Roosevelt was, of course, installing, thought we have to stop this in some way, and then began to use the Founding Fathers to justify the resistance to the New Deal. Now, Roosevelt was very aggressive uh, about the Constitution and really pushing the limits of what yeah. he could do as president to, uh, you know, to, to expand, I think, presidential power so he could do what he wanted to do, which was the New Deal and get it through and particularly his issue with the court, the Supreme Court. Talk about that a little bit for the for the listener. Yeah, Roosevelt was a was he came into office as a as a true blue progressive. I mean, he was it was a straight up progressive. He um, when he accepted the Democratic nomination for the presidency in 1932, he departed from um, convention and he he actually uh, accepted the nomination in person, which is something that that really didn't happen. You know, the, the, the nominee was often somewhere else and would be notified at some later point in time. But instead he told, uh, he, he telegraphed the party leaders and said, hold the convention in session. And then he flew to Chicago and addressed the, at that point, tired and electrified crowd. And he said, let it be symbolic that I broke traditions. I mean, that was his entire policy platform that he was going to reject kind of outmoded ideas and, um, uh, outmoded political arrangements in order to fight the New Deal. And what he found was that many people were in favor of this, but these these businessmen in particular were not. And so what the businessmen did, um, they, 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 they did a few very smart things. First, they started printing up these pamphlets by the millions, and then they would, they would send them and them out. And then second, they began uh, appealing to the court, and the court began striking down the New Deal. You're um, talking and, about the Liberty League. The American Liberty League, exactly. Okay, which I thought was very was a very interesting group. Yeah, yeah, it was led by some of the richest men in America, and they were straightforwardly worried that the New Deal was socialistic, um, which in a certain sense it was, and then in a certain certain sense it, it wasn't. But they recognized that in, in a time of Great Depression, they couldn't really, you know, go on and on about socialism because that wasn't going to motivate the common man. And they couldn't say we want to protect property because that was what they in fact wanted to do because that would also turn off the common man. And so they began casting about for, um, in their words, and I got this from the planning documents of the American Liberty League, um, they began casting about for uh, an alternative moral and emotional purpose for their group. And, um, and what they decided on was uh, the Constitution and the Founding Fathers, that they would use these two um, things as a way to justify their own political activism. And what I found so stunning was that they were forthright in their planning documents um, that they didn't really care about those things. You know, they actually wanted to change the Constitution. They wanted to eliminate the 16th Amendment, which was the income tax amendment. They wanted to uh, do various other things to make the Constitution more business friendly. But for the purposes of their political activities, 
they uh, forthrightly said, we need to actually say that we revere the Constitution, we protect the Constitution, and they used the Constitution and the Founding Fathers as propagandistic symbols to resist the New Deal. It's almost like at this point, I, I notice in the book, it's like the Constitution becomes sacred text. Right, yeah. It's, it's sort of, it's almost like it came down from heaven. Yeah. Authorized by God, and therefore you don't change it, and you have to rever it, and you try to get to the... It, it has a lot to do, a lot of parallels, I think, with uh, sort of a literal fundamentalist view of the of the Bible. Yeah, that you try to get to its pure essence that never changes. It's God's will. Yeah, the same, exactly. that, that same sort of hermeneutic is being applied to the to the Constitution. Exactly, and, and the founding fathers become the apostles, you know, in, in Protestant imagination, and, and, and the idea, uh, and the rhetoric kind of kind of uh, worked worked in this way as well, you know, is that is that there was there was this kind of pure um, uh, scriptural text that was that was established back 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 in the day, and then various corruptions had crept in, and the most da- damaging was the New Deal, and now what what uh, uh, the um, American Liberty League was saying was we need to then go back to this original moment where the uh, the, the, the pure words of Scripture, you know, as 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 given by the apostles, uh, is then authoritative in the community again today. That's exactly right. So it's a sort of like a, a high point in American civil religion. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, now Roosevelt did try to to pack the court mm-hmm. uh, or expand the number of uh, Supreme Court justices in order to be able to pass some of his legislation. Yeah. And that probably instigated a lot of opposition that we got from the Liberty League. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Well, so um, the, the Liberty League by that point had largely been defeated because the, the, the way it worked was that Roosevelt realized that he was um, facing a, a kind of a two-pronged challenge between the American Liberty League and the opposition on the court. And so what he did is um, throughout 1935, he began to retool his message. He had ran as a, as a progressive and he had justified the New Deal at, on, on essentially – progressive ba- uh, uh, bases as, a, as a, an attempt to reconstruct American government to meet the realities of a new industrial age. But in 1935, he began to change, and instead he began speaking of um, an, an entrenched and aristocratic minority that was, that was resisting his aims. And he spent all of 1935, and especially the election year of 1936, then representing himself not as a progressive, but as an essentially as a conservative, as someone who was defending the founding fathers and the ideal of the founding fathers, um, which he said was democracy, uh, the um, uh, 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 rule of the people against an entrenched elite. He began speaking of these economic royalists, which meant, um, in in this case, the American Liberty League. And he began saying that the founding fathers uh, overcame political royalism in the American Revolution, and now he was battling economic royalism. And so he began to kind of align himself with the Founding Fathers, and he changed his entire narrative strategy in a way that was ultimately fantastically successful in 1936. But he hadn't defeated the court by 1936, even though he had, he had triumphed in, um, in, in, in that election. And so he put forward this, this plan uh, to... Um, nominate for every justice over 70 and a half years old, 
another justice, supposedly to, you know, sort of help the justices that were slowing down with age uh, address the caseload, up to a maximum of 15. But the problem there was that he had, he had, he had spent the last year and a half um, creating this narrative about the founding fathers. And so he had boxed himself in because many people in the American public didn't know that the number of justices wasn't specified in the Constitution. And so they believed, contrary to his intentions, that by um, changing the number of justices, that he was changing the founders' plan of government. And so they reacted pretty strongly against the Ameri- the um, the, uh, the court-packing plan. But ultimately, it wound up not mattering. The, the um, Supreme Court kind of saw the writing in the wall, recognized that it was um, very quickly going to be um, uh, attacked and, and overcome if it didn't change. And so uh, the Chief Justice switched and became a uh, kind of pro-New Deal vote, and that made the um, uh, members of the court 5-4 pro the New Deal, and at that point, the New Deal could go forward. But for my... Um, for my uh, narrative, this is such an important moment because Roosevelt's decision to adopt the founding fathers really showed the power of the founding fathers. And it was really from that point forward that the founding fathers entered pretty full-fledged into American political debate. And both sides, both the, the Republicans and Democrats, began to use them to justify their, their political positions. And another thing that I see there here, here is that the introduction of the court in mm-hmm. this whole thing that, okay, if we can't decide, if we can't decide what the founding fathers meant, or we can't, the court is going to be the one that's going to interpret the Constitution. That's their job. Yeah. So if you can somehow control the court, mm-hmm. uh, you can control the interpretation that's going to win. Right. And then we're going to see this, of course, in the rest of the 20th century. Um, yeah. And how problematic that becomes. Okay, let's go on to... Uh, King, Martin Luther King and Reagan, Ronald Reagan, they both appeal to the founders for very different reasons and very different objectives. Yeah. yeah. So talk about th- their differences in how they each used the, uh, especially in the 1960s, how, how they used the, uh, the founders to support their arguments. Yeah, so I actually think that the the King um, Reagan um, uh, disagreement actually grew out of just that 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 point that you you just brought up. In that, from from really from the, the the New Deal on, the question became: How do you marshal a narrative? How, how do you how, or how do you present a narrative in a way to marshal enough public votes so that your interpretation of the Constitution and your interpretation of American national life becomes fundamental. Part of that point, you know, the, 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 the um, procedure might have been to propose constitutional amendments. And there was a lot of constitutional amendments between the Civil War and the Progressive Era. Uh, but there haven't been as many uh, uh, consequential constitutional amendments since that time, precisely because what, is, what has happened was a kind of amendment by interpretation. And, and the amendment by interpretation relies fundamentally on this um, uh, this, this narrativizing of, of your position. And so what, what both King and Reagan did, and they both um, uh, uh, were, were active in national life at about the same time. We tend to not, not, not quite remember that. Um, Reagan in the 50s was the head of, of a, of a um, program called General Electric Theater, and he became a major figure in Republican um, uh, conservative political circles. And then, of course, King was, from 1954 on, the leader of the American Civil Rights Movement. And both of them, then by the 1960s, had developed this um, 
fairly clear and completely contradictory narrative about the founding fathers. King followed Lincoln and Wilson and others in saying that the founding fathers had put forward this ideal of equality. That ideal of equality had been denied for black Americans. And because of the incompleteness of American history, the civil rights movement was now essentially fighting for this ideal that the founding fathers themselves had promoted. Um, on the other side, Reagan, um, and, and, and he began to say this most clearly in uh, 1964 in a speech called A Time for Choosing, which he gave for Barry Goldwater. Reagan uh, argued that the Founding Fathers had uh, established a, a set of ideals that had been more or less honored for the first, let's say, 150 years in the nation's existence. But that with the coming of the New Deal, those, those, uh, those ideals had been subverted. And so Reagan did essentially what the American Liberty League and uh, Warren G. Harding and, and all the kind of conservatives going back to the 1920s uh, uh, said, uh, which was we need to go back to the founding fathers. We need to dismantle the New Deal, and in doing so, we will restore American greatness. And in each of these, these were both Jeremiads in one way or another, but they had really contradictory outcomes. Um, King wanted the federal government to intervene in the states in order to protect black civil rights. And uh, Reagan wanted the federal government to shrink and to really give over power back to the states um, in order to go back to this kind of 19th century state-centered democracy uh, that he saw uh, had existed prior to the New Deal. So what was uh, Reagan's position on the Civil Rights Act of 1964? What was his position? Uh, Did he thought it was a overreach or what? Uh, Reagan was, in general, very ambivalent about civil rights. Reagan didn't necessarily have to declare a position on the 1964 Civil Rights Act because he was in, um, at this point, uh, he was just in, in private life. And, um, and and when he gave uh, the speech, he didn't address it at all. But many people kind of after that would point out that if you're going to give power back over to the states, you're going to empower state-level discrimination. And I think it's fair to say that Reagan was unmoved by the concern that states were where discrimination was happening, and so you needed to curtail state power by expanding the reach of the federal government. He simply avoided that issue and talked about other issues entirely. And once he got into office in 1980 – Many people would continue to point out because he, he continued this theme that, that, that you need to devolve power from the federal government to the states. And they can, and many people continue to point out you're really just empowering state level discrimination. And at that point, he said, no, I believe that we've come far enough as a nation that, you know, we can get, we can, we can, we can move beyond that. So, so. does this converge with, you don't talk about this, but the whole idea of colorblindness. Yeah. That he sort of believed, you know, it's a colorblind constitution. Mm-hmm. We've come, come enough culturally now that we are colorblind and we're going to make decisions based on individual merit, individual uh, achievement, and not anything else. Yeah. That was part of that argument. That, that was part of the argument. I mean, part of the problem with, with sort of assessing Reagan is that he would occasionally engage in the politics of race in a way that um, – it makes it hard to say that he that he that he wasn't sensitive on some level to it. So, for example, he started his 1980 um, general election campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And Philadelphia, Mississippi, is where three 
um, civil rights workers were uh, found in an earthen dam having been murdered during the Freedom Summer of 1964. So this is a very charged spot to begin your 1960, uh, your 1980 uh, general election campaign. And what he said to the people of Philadelphia, Mississippi, is that we've gone too far and we, I believe in local people solving their own problems and I believe in states' rights. And if you're in Philadelphia, Mississippi in 1980, and remember this is 16 years really after the Freedom Summer of 1964, saying you believe in local people solving their own problems and in states' rights, I mean, there is no way to read that as anything other than um, uh, not very subtle dog whistles to racist Southerners. I mean, that, that's just the only way to read that. But then on the other hand, if you actually read um, Reagan's papers, and I've read a lot of Reagan's papers, he, 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 I've never read an explicitly prejudiced thing that he says, like a kind of a straightforwardly prejudiced thing. So it's a complicated thing because his policies would tend to be not very sensitive to the um, problem of, of civil rights, and he always resisted pretty much everything that involved addressing uh, the, the um, attacks against black civil rights. But he himself seems to not betray any, any um, kind of racist sentiment. What he seemed to care about most was this deep-seated belief that the founding fathers had established a set of principles and that we just needed to go back to it, um, whatever, whatever happened. Reagan wasn't a Southerner. He was not. And so he probably didn't have a full-orbed understanding of Southern culture and history. Right. right. And so uh, it probably did. I think that probably he said that because he does believe in state rights, but he didn't really understand the cultural implications about what he was saying. I don't know. That, that's it's so let's put it like this. Someone understood the cult, the cultural implications. You know, you don't, you don't go to Philadelphia, Mississippi and start talking about states rights and local control without knowing what you're saying. Okay. Um, and and, and in many cases, what we do know about Reagan is Reagan wrote or extensively edited his own speeches, unlike many other politicians. And because, um, you know, we have his speeches and we have them either written in his hand or with extensive edits. And so he was involved in that decision, however it came about. Okay. So, uh, so now he gets, he gets elected president and you have the Reagan revolution mm-hmm. and Again, the court becomes a very central piece of the yeah. Reagan administration in terms of who's going to be on the court. Let's talk about those the court battles that Reagan went through. Okay. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, at least initially the court wasn't that important in, in his, um, in, at least his, in his own calculation. And in 1981, he got his first nominee to the court. And many conservatives were pushing for a true blue conservative for him to nominate to the court. And, and he... Uh, rejected them and instead uh, put forward the moderate Sandra Day O'Connor and really kind of upset them. Um, and from that point forward, then he was pursuing his 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 goals um, in in the political realm. He, he of course uh, inaugurated a set of tax cuts. He wanted to shrink uh, government. He expanded um, the uh, um, uh, military budget and then created these massive budget deficits to the point that um, by his second term. Really, they, they were achieving gridlock because he uh, had kind of lost the, the trust of, of Congress. Many in the Democratic House were refusing to work with him. It was already clear that by um, ni- uh, 1986, he was probably going to lose the Senate, which he, he then wound up losing. And so he began shifting to the courts as a way of um, creating this 
constitutional and political revolution. And he had two appointees to the court in uh, 1986. Uh, the first was when Lewis Powell, um, no, uh, that was in 1987, sorry. Um, the first was when one of the members of the court resigned and he nominated uh, William Rehnquist, who was the associate justice on the court at that point, And he nominated him uh, for, for chief justice. And then that created another opening, and he nominated Antonin Scalia. And both of these men were, were what are called originalists, meaning they believed that the um, Constitution had a meaning that was fixed at its founding, that the goal of judging was to assess the original meaning of the Constitution and then to apply it in to the case at hand, and that, and that that was that, that the meaning didn't change over time, that um, subsequent court decisions, to the extent that they departed from that meeting, were to be rejected. Uh, and what this was, was ultimately a program of um, conservative Jewish jurisprudential revolution, um, kind of couched in this conservative language. And many of the liberal members of the court began to be very, very critical. Um, but uh, Reagan was in full support because this is exactly what what he wanted. And so both of these men then went through, they were installed on the court. And then in 1986, he lost control of the Senate and Democrats took control of the Senate. And, uh, uh, and, and so then in 1987, when Lewis Powell retired, this was his, his now fourth nominee to the court, which is an extraordinary number of, of people. And at this point, he then nominated Robert Bork. And Bork was even more conservative than Antonin Scalia or William Rehnquist. Um, but Bork was also a professor of law, and he had this very extensive paper trail. He had taught at um, Yale Law School for a long time. And so Democrats, who are now, remember, controlling the Senate, mobilized, criticizing Bork and, and by extension, the entire um, program of originalism that Bork uh, uh, kind of represented and uh, completely uh, demolished his, his ability uh, to, to, to serve on the court. He was then rejected by the Senate Judiciary Committee. He then required uh, a full vote of the Senate. He was rejected by the entire Senate as a whole. And um, from that moment forward, the, the, the Senate nominee process became this crucial moment in American politics to the point that we now speak of someone being borked uh, because, because, the, at that point, by 1987, it was already clear that the kind of the political order was drifting into these two very divisive um, and, and, and separate uh, political orientations, conservative and liberal. Uh, and so the court became this way of overcoming those um, that political gridlock. If you could kind of capture the court, then then you could do what you wished. Right. The, the, the court, had became, during Reagan's administration, became sort of key to everything. If you can control the court, the idea is, of course, you can control the, the way the nation's going to go. Let's go into the Tea Party and the budgetary battles uh, yeah. that happened under the, when the Tea Party was really going, and the whole idea of a balanced, balanced budget amendment. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, part of the problem with, with – um, the, the, Looking back now, I think it was Jeb Bush that said maybe a couple years ago that Reagan would no longer fit into the Republican Party because he's too moderate. Um, and it seems clear that what happened is that since Reagan's time, Reagan had perfected this narrative about, you know, the founding fathers and we need to go back. And, 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 and if we don't, then, then the nation is, is, is going to fall apart. And um, Reagan seemed to believe that, though he also at the end of the day compromised. But um, many in his 
party believed it even more fervently. And um, that narrative continued to grow through the 1994 uh, elections when the Republicans seized control of Congress through the George W. Bush administration, and then especially with the election of Obama in 2008. And many in the Republican base began to think that the, the, the sort of the long prophesied decline of the United States uh, w- was now, and that the only thing that could save uh, the United States was this return to the founding fathers, and you can see that even in in the the, the name of the Tea Party. You know, they conceive themselves, uh, they, they conceive of themselves as this sort of revolutionary reenactment of that original revolutionary moment to to, to supposedly go back to those original principles. Um, and the problem, though, is that. These original principles, at least as, as Reagan has put, put them forward and, and have become written into the, the, the Republican understanding more generally, they don't necessarily add up because the, the, the idea seems to be that you can cut taxes, that you can often increase military spending, and that you can somehow nevertheless not run massive deficits, but you can instead balance the budget. And and anybody with kind of basic budgetary understanding would say that you, you can't do that. If you cut taxes, you, you bring in less money. If you spend more money on the military, then you're going to run massive deficits. And that's what you see over and over and over again. And so part of the problem with the Tea Party is that they believe a set of policy proposals that don't make any sense, but they have been convinced by Republican politicians that these somehow are justified by the founding fathers. And so they're in this position where they can't compromise even when basic budgetary math requires that they compromise. And, and so you see what has happened in, in the Obama administration, which is a kind of recurrent series of crises, all justified by fidelity to the founding generation, but on a policy level that doesn't make uh, any sense and that doesn't add up to anything at all. And the Republican politicians, particularly the Republican the Republican establishment have always understood this, that, you know, you, you sort of play to the base, but then when you actually govern, you have to compromise and, 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 and follow basic budgetary rules. But uh, the Republican establishment now finds themselves in a position where they're controlled by a radicalized base that they uh, have sort of created, but have now slipped the leash and they don't know really what to do. Okay. And we're talking about the big questions here. <laughs> <laughs> that, that you've done a good job of just giving us sort of the sweep of your book, which is you know, a lot of time and a lot of issues. Everybody loves the Constitution. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like it doesn't matter if you're on the right or the left or whatever. Everybody claims that they love the Constitution. We believe in the Constitution, even if you don't like the founders. <laughs> and there has been a lot of critics of the founders for a lot of reasons, slaveholders right. and misogynists and there's all kinds of critiques of the founders. But there's something that Americans seem to, both on the right and the left, are not willing to do. Uh, we're both, the, uh, both sides, all sides, are very conservative about the Constitution. Right. In terms of changing it. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're reformers, not revolutionaries. We move very slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though we might have a lot of revolutionary rhetoric, in the end, nobody really wants to tamper with the Constitution. Uh-huh. And it seems like the the debates about the founders and what the Constitution means and the fact that we've had in the last few decades, new rights have emerged. Right. The right to health care, privacy, education. We have enumerated a bunch of new rights mm-hmm. that are out in the popular imagination. Um, so isn't it time to reconsider 
the Constitution and have a constitutional convention because that seems to be what is underneath it all. Of course, we realize if we do that, we're going to have a huge unraveling, and that would really be a revolution. Right. But is is the problem really that the Constitution is outdated, that the Constitution no longer is the will of the people? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so I would say I would I would separate it out. I, I would say my my main point in this book is to separate the founding fathers from the Constitution, and if, they, if we are going to talk about the Constitution, then let's talk about the Constitution rather than using the founding fathers as kind of slogan, sloganeering and propagandistic symbols uh, to put forward our, our own constitutional interpretation. But if you're asking me, which I don't talk about this in the book at all, should we have a new constitutional convention? Is the Constitution itself outdated? In my own opinion, it is. And, and it is um, for a, a number of, of reasons. Um, I'd say most fundamentally, the, the problem with the Constitution is that it's anti-democratic by design. Um, you know, I'm, I'm from Texas, which is the, uh, the second largest, most populous state in, in, in the nation. And, um, but it, you know, as a, as, a, as a voter from Texas, I'm not in Texas now, I'm in Georgia, but, but when I was a voter in Texas, I had far less influence in, and, um, and uh, uh, political representation than a voter from Wyoming. And the simple reason for that is because the voter from Wyoming has two representatives or two senators in, in the U.S. Senate, which is the same number of Texas, even though they have just a fractional number of uh, the people who live in the state. And, and so that's just anti-democratic on its face. And it, and it was so really by design. And part of the problem is, is that in the Constitution, you can't pass an amendment that would make the Senate um, uh, uh, proportionally representative that is forbidden in the Constitution itself. You can amend everything else, but you can't amend that. And so the only recourse is a new constitutional convention. Um, there's also other problems with the Constitution. Um, you know, we live in a nearly constant election cycle. And so when a president is uh, elected, this is just common political wisdom. The president, everyone knows, has basically a year, one year. And then after that year, the entire political establishment is going to turn to the midterm elections. And it is also a very frequent phenomenon that the president's party loses in the midterm elections, at which point he's wounded and nothing really much can happen for the next two years. And so then if the president then gets reelected, he has, again, one year before the midterm elections happen again. And so essentially, if you serve eight years as the president, you have two years where you can do something. And what that translates to, given the realities of legislation, is you can do two things. You have two signature initiatives. And that seems to me to be a crazy way to govern a country. So, um, yeah. Especially since four years now is a lot of shorter time because of media. Right. That it seems four years now goes like that versus four Uh, years when you had, you know, just print. Sure. But yeah. in terms of, you know, we have so many new rights that have been have emerged. We have a, mm-hmm. a very pluralistic, very diverse society. Mm-hmm. If there was to be a constitutional convention, it would be revolutionary. And I don't know and I don't think that um, the country would come out in whole peace. <laughs> okay? Yeah. The way things stand right now. But in your book, what you, you, you talk about this issue of uh, 
evoking the founders and how that has tied up our politics. How do? What's your answer? You don't really talk about it, but you must have a, a an idea of how to break the deadlock. What would, short of getting a new constitution and having a constitutional convention, which is probably not going to happen because no one wants one, mm-hmm. nobody. Right. <laughs> um, it's too dangerous. Right. What? What would? How do you break the deadlock? How do we get beyond this? evoking the founders what would the politics look like if you're not always appealing to some you know sacred text or some idea ideal ideal yeah how do you well see i go back to the progressive era you know that was that was an era where we we had a politics actually that we we that that, that didn't look back to a sacred era and it didn't invoke the founders constantly. And it wasn't um, a necessarily stable political time. Um, There were all kinds of progressive visions. But the thing that I most like about that era is that um, what politicians were concerned with was not fidelity to some putative past um, uh, or fidelity to some supposedly united uh, group of men that lived at that point a century ago and now have lived two centuries ago. But they, it was a politics instead that said, what are the problems, what are the solutions, and what would progress look like? And, of course, they came up with different problems and different solutions and different visions of progress, but it was an entirely different kind of debate. And I think that is a very good and useful kind of debate, a debate that's present and forward-looking, um, that is pragmatic and solution uh, program, uh, pragmatic and solution-oriented rather than backward-looking and, um, uh, um, and ideological. So where do you hope that your uh, readers will find the book useful? What would you like for the book to do? You know, I had, um, when I was reading in the... Um, Uh, New Deal era, I came across a definition of propaganda uh, from Harold D. Laswell, and and it is this. Propaganda is the management of collective attitudes through the manipulation of significant symbols. And it seems pretty clear to me that when people, politicians especially, talk about the founding fathers in the U.S. Constitution, they are self-evidently engaging in the management of collective attitudes uh, uh, through the manipulation of significant symbols. And so what I'd like for my readers to do is I would like them to to kind of familiarize themselves with all the different ways in which the founding fathers are appealed to. And then when they're listening to an American politician speak and that politician brings up the founding fathers and uh, the U.S. Constitution, that they would ask themselves, am I being manipulated? And the chances are... Uh, yes, they are. And then they would know how to regard that politician's uh, claims from that point forward. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.